0: So I was thinking about this. Things I used to trust. There are some things that we trusted at one point that we no longer trust. Like, like things I used to trust. For instance, I used to trust the news. I don't care which side of argument you're on. It's hard to trust the news. The world has shifted, and so what happens is we become cynical and we stop trusting things, Right? I used to trust my dad's homework skills doing my homework with me. Somewhere around fifth grade or so, he's helping me do math work, giving me all the answers, helping me do it all, and I go in the classroom and find every one of them was wrong. I trusted him to a certain degree, and then you don't trust him anymore. Come on, anybody with me? I used to trust Taco Bell until I learned about the kind of meat that they use. Some of you, I just messed up your lunch today. You used to be able to trust a handshake. Now, not so much. I used to be able to trust water from the faucet, but now we have to have bottled water and all the other types of water, and if you drink water from your faucet, it'll kill you. I grew up drinking water out of the spigot outside because I never wanted to go inside. It's amazing that I'm still alive. We used to trust our educational system. Sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's funny. We used to trust the colleges we sent our students to. I used to trust Ada when she said, I'm just going to run in the store real quick. That trust didn't last very long, to be honest. We used to trust the government. For a very short time, we trusted that elevator on Main Street. Some of you understand that one because you've been trapped in that silly elevator that just seems like something's always wrong with it. We used to trust our justice system and our legal system. My point is, there are things that for one reason or another you used to trust it, something happens, you outgrow it, something happens, and you no longer trust the very thing you used to trust. Can you trust the Bible? Because there's a lot of people in our society that have outgrown the Bible just like you outgrow your dad's ability to do your math homework. (laughs) You you outgrow the Bible just like you now don't trust the news that you used to trust. You used to trust the Bible. This used to be something you would listen to and pay attention to, used to be something you would honor, but now we no longer trust it. (laughs) So can we trust the Bible? It's been under attack for a long time now. Can we still trust the Bible or has it been under attack to the point that it's been proven to be untrustworthy? like a lot of other things we've experienced. Now, let me just help you out this morning. I love to preach motivational stuff, I love to shout, and maybe we'll do a little bit of that at the very end. But we are going to a college classroom today because I want to show you whether or not you can trust this as being accurate, as being correct, as being trustworthy. And so sometimes, as your pastor, I get to give you, give you, a, a, you know, um, ice cream and cake and fun stuff that makes you feel good. Other time, we gotta go back into the broccoli and asparagus and, spinach, and and we got to go into some things that is going to make your brain go a little deep. You're going to take a lot of notes this morning. You may want to go back and re-watch this message because it's going to help solidify your faith for you who are believers and help answer some of your questions for you who are not believers. Okay, all right, so let's just start out in this place because it's the best place to start. There's this church leader named Paul that's leading the early church or one of the leaders. He's not the leader, but one of the leaders of the early church, and he's planting churches everywhere he goes and oftentimes taking people and making them campus pastors, essentially, uh, after he leaves, and he stays on uh, in touch with them through letters. We have some of those letters that Paul wrote. One of them is to the pastor of a church in Ephesus, a young man you might have heard of. His name was Timothy, right? So this young Timothy, he's writing a letter to him. And I think one of the most important things you need to know about this next verse is that this is Paul's last letter. It's traditionally believed this is the last thing that Paul penned that we still have to this day. And if you know you're getting towards the end of your life and you know difficulty is coming, you tend to pen things that matter. And so when he's writing to the young Timothy, this young pastor, he says this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to connect the dots real quick with you because you have this man who probably realizes my time on earth is almost over. Right. I've been training you. I've been investing in you. I've been writing all these letters. I've been teaching you. Now when I'm not here anymore, there is still something that can teach you, that can train you, that can help you with, with, with correcting and righteousness and rebuking and teaching. There's still something that's going to be left after I'm gone. Right. All scripture. So, when we talk about can we trust the Bible, I just wanna real quickly uh, point out that we're gonna focus on the New Testament primarily for for two reasons, Uh, the first one being because the Old Testament is nowadays understood as accurate. Uh, Say, how in the world do you know that? Well, back in 1947, uh, there was a Bedouin shepherd, a young boy who was out in the Qumran desert of Israel, and he's throwing rocks, because it's gotta be boring when you're a shepherd. I mean, what do you do? You watch sheep all day, I mean, come on. It's not the most exciting job. And so he's sitting out there, and he's throwing rocks as a young kid would do. I think the best baseball players in the world are probably Bedouin shepherds that never got a shot. Anyway, he's throwing rocks, and he throws a rock into a cave, and he hears a clank, and he thinks, what is that? So he goes to investigate it, goes inside and finds what is now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were over a thousand years older than anything else that was previously uh, had. So, so it's a thousand years prior to anything. So if there were gonna be changes in the manuscripts, if, if you had zealous monks who were changing things, you would know it because you got a thousand years from what we had to how far we went back with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what we found were almost exact mess exact copies of every Old Testament book except Esther Esther was not there but almost exact copies of every Old Testament book this was a big moment because the atheists and the agnostics and the skeptics thought this is going to prove that it's been changed all these years this is a thousand that's a long time y'all thousand years is a long time it's going to prove that it's been changed, and what they found was that it had not been changed. And so you don't hear as much scrutiny on that aspect of the Old Testament as you do the New Testament. But the second reason we're going to focus on the New Testament is that if you accept the New Testament, you have to accept the Old Testament, because the New Testament writers built their foundation on the Old Testament, constantly referred back to it, constantly looked back. I mean, it's kind of—so so if you accept the New Testament, the Old Testament just kind of comes with it. So because of those two reasons, uh, we're going to focus primarily on the New Testament today and ask this question. can you trust the Bible let me give you four reasons again this is gonna be relatively quick I have three hours in presentation to do in the next 35 minutes go four reasons you can trust the New Testament because number one the New Testament writers told the truth they told the truth say, that's a real stretch, Pastor Brent. How in the world do you know they told the truth? Well, just like any historical document, any forensic science, anything that you're looking back to determine what happens, uh, there's different tests that can be done. One of the biggest one is called the principle of embarrassment. It basically says this. If people make up a story, they always make themselves out the hero of the story, and they don't put embarrassing stories in, in aspects about themselves. Yep. I don't make myself look like the goof if I'm going to tell you a story. I make myself look like the hero. Right. Anybody ever notice that, right? Yeah. That's one of the ways you know that the story has been twisted. Well, here's the thing. Let me give you, uh, I think it's five things here. The New Testament writers recorded embarrassing details about themselves and hard-to-accept teachings of Jesus. (laughs) So they got these embarrassing details about themselves. What do you mean? First of all, they're seen as as dim-witted. Many times, over and over and over, they fail to understand what Jesus is teaching until much later, and they have this aha moment, the light bulb goes off, and suddenly they understand what Jesus is saying. So they're basically showing that I'm not the smartest guy. I didn't get it either. Secondly, they're seen as uncaring. Notice many different verses. For instance, like when when Jesus is, is needing them most in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you find them sleeping. I don't put that in the story if I'm writing it. Like maybe it's true, but I just don't share it I don't tell you about it if I'm writing it Uh, You see that they are frequently rebuked that over and over and over, they are rebuked by Jesus for different things. At one point, Jesus even calls Peter Satan. Come on, y'all. Get thee behind me, Satan. I might leave that part out if I were making up a story, and I'm Peter or one of the early people. Uh, Acts records a fight that went on between Peter and Paul over, wrong, or over theology issues, right? It's, you know, uh, uh, it's just crazy. Uh, Galatians says, now Peter had come to Antioch, and I withstood him to his face. It shows the stories of all the blemishes of the early church, it's, it's crazy. Uh, the fourth thing here would be they're cowards. Where do you find these guys, check this out, where do you find these guys when Jesus dies on the cross for three days? Hiding, Hiding scared for their lives. You wanna really mess this up and show that they're telling the truth? Who are the heroes of the story? Who are the ones who are not scared that go to the, to- to go to the tomb first? Come on, ladies, who are the ones who were not scared and went to the tomb first? The women. Now, you know the men were telling the truth if they're saying that. The women were the brave ones. They're the ones that went to the tomb first. They're actually the first ones to preach the gospel. People say women can't aren't allowed to preach. Who's the very first ones to preach the gospel? Jesus said, go tell James and the others, Peter. Go tell them, that's the gospel. <laughs> anyway, they were seen as Doubters. Uh, despite over and over being told that Jesus would rise from the dead, they still didn't believe it until he actually did it. Right? Thomas is the most famous of that, but but they're seen as doubters. All right. The second thing here: the New Testament writers include embarrassing details and difficult sayings of Jesus. And, and I know I said that twice. There was a mistake on my part. Hard to accept teachings, but uh, you see that you see that there. So there's these embarrassing details about Jesus. Consider this: Mark three, Jesus is considered out of his mind by his brothers and sisters. Uh, We don't like to talk about that verse. But if I'm making up a story and I just want Jesus to be proclaimed as the Messiah and everybody to accept it, I'm probably not telling that part of the story that his mother and brothers came and thought this dude has lost his ever loving mind. What is he doing? He's not believed by his own brothers in John chapter 7. He's thought to be a deceiver in John chapter 7. He's deserted by his followers in John 6. Uh, He turns off the Jews who believed in him to the point of them wanting to stone him in John chapter 8. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He's called a madman. Many people gave a lot of names to Jesus that were not nice. People that were respected during the day. The scientists, so to speak. The ones you're supposed to pay attention to what they say. They call Jesus a lot of bad names, but yet they're all recorded Jesus is crucified on a cross despite Deuteronomy saying that anybody who's hung on a tree is under God's curse that's why Galatians says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree depending on your translation not only that but the New Testament writers left these demanding ridiculously demanding teachings of Jesus I preached a series one time called Tabloid Jesus. Anybody here for that years ago? That was fun, that was a fun series. Tabloid Jesus, because Jesus would say things that should be on the tabloids. No rational person says this kind of stuff. Jesus said if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Come on, Jesus, that's not reasonable. That's a pretty demanding teaching. All of us in this room, male or female, on the other side have probably already committed adultery at some point, somewhere, right? Matthew 5, his teaching on divorce, again in Matthew 5, all this is just in the Sermon on the Mount, but he says if anybody slacks you, slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. We love that verse, right? Especially right now in America where people are wanting to protest and get angry at everything. We love that verse. That's a pretty demanding teaching. That when somebody does you wrong, you just turn your cheek and let them do you wrong again. If somebody steals your shirt and, and in your coat as well, just give them more. If they make you carry their satchel, just, just keep carrying it for an extra mile. These are demanding teachings. See, he actually taught people to love their enemies and pray for those who do them wrong. Those are, those are like, like, like if I'm making up a gospel that I want everybody to follow, I make it easy. <laughs> Not hard, right? If, if, if you want to get real hard, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Matthew 5:48. be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> That's a little demanding. Okay, be perfect, as if everything else wasn't hard enough. And he goes on and on and on. And they keep all these extremely demanding teachings of Jesus that if you were not telling the truth, you would not put there. We could talk at length about this, but we don't have time to say the New Testament writers include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. It's another evidence from history. When you make up stories, you don't use actual people most of the time. Even in Jesus' parables, one of the way you know it's a parable is because he doesn't use actual names and, and it's not an actual story, it's a made up story. And most of the time when you make up stories, you don't use actual people, but yet you see throughout the, the New Testament people like Agrippa I and the second, Ananias, Annas, uh, Aretas, Bernice, the wife of Agrippa, Caesar Augustus, Claudius, Caiaphas, uh, the uh, Eustace, Felix, Gallio, Gamaliel, uh, Herod Antipas, all these people that are mentioned in the New Testament that have corresponding mentions uh, within the secular world. Uh, and then the fifth thing here, I think it's five, uh, the New Testament writers had nothing to gain by lying and everything to lose. Maybe this is the greatest argument right here, Um, but there was nothing to gain by lying. People nowadays say, well, they gained prestige and they gained, uh, you know, authority and they gained all these kind of things. Not when they did it. Nowadays we love them, nowadays we celebrate them, nowadays, but they were running for their lives all their life. They were preaching the gospel and trying to survive by miraculous thing after miraculous thing. They would be excommunicated from the temple, which was their whole life at that time period. Uh, they would be probably most of the time excommunicated from their family and those who was closest to us. Think about it this way. What would cause you in this room to suddenly become a Muslim? Think of everything that would change in your life if you, that's a big, big step, and this was even greater than that step. And so, uh, you see this here, that the New Testament abandoned their, the New Testament writers, they abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices, and they accepted new ones, and they didn't deny their testimony under persecution of death, or death. Um, And then real quick, let me just share this with you, I just wanna share this really quick. The New Testament is collaborated by secular writers. Uh, I don't know if you know this. This is not talked about nearly as much, uh, but there are at least 10 non-Christian documents that mention Jesus within the first 150 years of his life. To give you perspective, we have nine of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time. That's interesting, isn't it? So just, here, here's a quick one, right? Uh, according to these secular authors, Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He was the, had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified by Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome, and his, deny, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped. Jesus as God. That's most of the gospel right there from secular people just telling you about the church and about what they perceived as happening within the 100, first 150 years of the life of Christ. That, that's pretty, pretty, pretty stinking amazing. And so you see it there, first of all. The New Testament writers. Told the truth. They weren't lying. They weren't making it up. There's no reason to believe that. You can accuse it of that, but you have to have something to back it up. And there's so there's just nothing there to back it up. Secondly, why do we trust the Bible? We have very early copies of the New Testament. Very early copies of the New Testament. Why does this matter? Because uh, when we talk about is the Bible trustworthy, one of the things that's oftentimes said is that it's a bunch of legend that was formed over time. So hundreds of years later, way afterwards, then these people started writing these documents and, and all this was legend and it was folklore. It's kind of like the fish stories, right? We've all, we've all had fish stories and then we caught the fish, he was this big. By the time we in the truck, he's this big. By the time we got home, he's this big. When I'm telling you the story, he's this big. It's kind of like those fish stories, right? It's just, the, the story grew. Grew over time. So, so you know, that's, that's really, really what happened. Well, first of all, that's not what happened because it wasn't enough time for the story to grow. What do you mean? Uh, next note that you have right there, the life of Jesus or the gospels was written by eyewitnesses or people who recorded firsthand testimony. That's very important. So it was eyewitnesses that either wrote it or recorded the testimony from eyewitnessers, scribes, people who are, who are trying to, to do their best to give an account of these things. In fact, you see this twice in 1 Peter and then in Luke 1. Just look at these verses with me real quick. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised schemes <laughs> when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there, we saw this stuff, man, we saw it. And then Luke chapter 1. This is Luke, he uh, he also writes the book of Acts. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just pause there for a second. We ended up with four gospels. But there could have been many others that were written because people started to realize this guy is important and we gotta get this word out, right? We gotta get this word out. So just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, so I got it from eyewitnesses and Luke, the physician, the doctor, the one who's educated and intellectual, says I took it upon myself to investigate all all of this and make sure it was true and that's where we get the gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts that follows that uh, the gospel writers were all living at the times of the events and so therefore they could easily rise up and say no it didn't happen this way or it didn't happen that way you got to remember the Bible was originally passed down orally the stories of Christ were originally passed down orally you say were the disciples taking notes when Jesus spoke maybe maybe not Typically people say, no, but you don't know that. Maybe they were, but they were passed down orally and people say, well, why did it take so long to put it into written form? Well, first of all, it didn't take very long by the standards. But secondly, wouldn't you rather hear the story from somebody than read it? If you got somebody who was there, I can read about September 11th, but I would much rather sit and talk to somebody who was there when it happened right? And so as long as these guys are still telling the stories, why do I want it written down? I can hear the story. It was an oral gospel first before it became a written gospel. So, so you get this, this idea. So in order for legend to be true, there needed to be a great deal of time between the events and the written account. So you need, you need a great deal of time. You don't have that. In fact, there's strong internal evidence that the gospels were written at a very early date, Stay with me. I know this is, this is just a lot this morning, but stay with me. It's important. The book of Acts records the missionary activities of the early church and is the sequel to the book of Luke that we just talked about, written by Luke. Acts ends with Paul being alive in Rome. He's not dead. Uh, he is still alive in Rome. This would lead us to believe it's written before he died because if he had died, he would have put that into the story right there too. It's just the early testimony of the church. Uh, we know that Paul was put to death during the Neronian persecution of AD 64. Therefore, the book of Acts has to be written before AD 64. Luke has to be written before that. So Luke is probably in the 50s or 60s. Now the death of Christ took place around AD 30, which means Luke was written within 30 years of the event, maybe 20 years of the event that that gets written down. Early traditions teach that Matthew was the first book composed. Now there's questions about all that, but it also teaches that Mark might've been the first book composed. Nobody believes Luke was the first book composed. So when you look at it that way, uh, you can see that the entire New Testament may have been written before A.D. 70. Let me give you another reason uh, to believe that, uh, and that is that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. That was the biggest thing for the Jews that much of the New Testament is written to. Uh, that would have been life-altering. That would have changed right. Everything. And yet, in all of our New Testament, we don't have a single account or a reference to the temple being destroyed. But I promise you, that was the talk of the town when that happened for a long time. That was a huge deal because now you can't worship. If the temple had been destroyed and they hadn't written yet and they were still writing, they would have mentioned it somewhere. That was destroyed in AD 70. Therefore, you can see that the entire New Testament may have been completely finalized before AD 70. Now there's other dates too, and you can go as far as Revelation being written between 90 and 95 AD. My point is there is an argument that it was extremely early, but even if you go with a later argument that it goes as far as the 90s with Revelation and everything else would have been well before that, but as far as uh, the 90s with Revelation, even if you use that argument, uh, 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 you still have a very, very early time period for this to happen. Uh, On top of that, John had to be really old be that old writing revelation, but you can let that sink in on yourself. So, um, to give you perspective, uh, Luke says many people could have stood up and said this wasn't what happened. Many people could have. It's like me telling you the story of Forrest Gump. Most of you in this room know the story of Forrest Gump, probably, uh, and so the story of Forrest Gump was about uh, 27 years ago-ish that that came out, don't age yourself, sorry. In that same year, though, another one came out, but the story of Forrest Gump goes like this. Uh, He was in the Old West, and he went to this town called Tombstone. And while he was in Tombstone, this band of cowboys came in, and it started a rivalry between him and the band of cowboys, and there was a fight. And at one point, Forrest Gump said, I'm your huckleberry. (laughs) And a lot of other cool things. Now, of course, you would all go, no, what are you talking about? That's completely different. What are you talking about, Pastor Brent? Here's the deal. It's not much different in time frame. But you still know that story's not right. Why? Because you know the accurate story. When these gospels are written and when you have the New Testament documents written and talk about the life of Christ and the church, there were plenty of people to stand up and go, what are you talking about? That is not the way this went down. Yeah. But you don't see those people. In fact, in some of the New Testament documents, you see people telling you, if you don't believe me, go check out the eyewitnesses. <laughs> and so you have this, this manuscript that is just, it's true. They were telling the truth. Uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon uh, was one of the most foremost expert on ancient manuscripts in the world. He's what's called a paleographer. That's the person who studies ancient manuscripts. He says it this way. He said the internal, uh, the interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest exact evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the new testament may be regarded as fully established that's the expert talking right there the expert Let's see, I I probably don't have time to go into depth about this, but let me just quickly throw out some stuff right here because we love in our human nature mysteries and we love uh, uh, conspiracy theories. I think it's in our nature to like that kind of stuff. So every Easter-ish, you will hear on Discovery Channel about the new gospel that's just been found and the church, the Vatican, has been hiding it from you for years. (laughs) Okay, that's just simply not true. Um, you have these gospels that were written during what's called the Gnostic period when, when people started to try to blend uh, Greek mythology and Christianity together and they gave them titles based on disciples and apostles thinking people would fall for that. Right? And so you end up with the Gospel of Mary, you end up with the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. For instance, the Gospel of, uh, uh, of Judas is dated between 220 and 340 AD, hundreds of years afterwards, way after. And they also don't make any sense. For instance, the Gospel of Mary denies the resurrection, argues against the second coming of Christ, denies Jesus as a path to eternal life, and even says that Jesus said there's no such thing as sin. Yeah. Um, and so you get this this idea, here's the truth, there are no hidden books of the Gospels. There are things that were written way later that were never accepted by any Christians or the church. It was written, like many things nowadays, to try to take people away from Christ. They were never considered part of the church. You say, well, why did it take so long to get the canon or rule of Scripture? Well, the reason it took so long to get that is because the church was underground for so long. You had the first 300 years of the church, and and they were being persecuted uh, over and over over and over there wasn't public meetings so much it would go in bands and waves and some persecution was greater than others and so in 313 Emperor Constantine has his conversion whatever you think of that is a whole nother story Uh, but he has his conversion and at that point Christianity suddenly becomes legal and is not only legal but is now celebrated that was a radical change uh, throughout the world Uh, and 50 years later you get the first council where they all come together for the first time and and make a canon of scripture but much like uh, much like a, a hymn or something like that, uh, they already had passed around the churches, everybody already knew what the canon was, all they were doing was putting it together, there was no big arguments, there was no big fuss, in fact, the whole canon of scripture was put uh, together during the Council of Laodicea, except for the book of Revelation, that was 30 years later when they met again and, and added that to the, count, to, the, to, the, to the standard of scripture, uh, why not the book of Revelation? Have you ever read the book of Revelation? <laughs> It's a little confusing, takes a little time to figure out what exactly it's trying to say, uh, a lot of allegory, a lot of, you know, and so it took a little bit longer with that, but there was, no, there was no big conspiracy about it. In fact, I would say it this way. In philosophy, we talk about red herrings when we have debates. Uh, red herring is a deliberate diversion from the attention with the intention of trying to abandon the original argument. So instead of arguing for this, I want to create this attention over here so we stop talking about this because I don't want to talk about it. Those things are very much red herrings that want to get us off and distract from what actually matters in the conversation to something that that doesn't matter. Uh, To me, it's like, um, have you ever seen the movie Little Rascals? I I personally love the movie Little Rascals. Um, And in the movie Little Rascals, they put up a a tent at the circus and they advertise a five-foot man-eating chicken. Y'all remember that? Assuming it's a five-foot man-eating chicken, a giant chicken that can eat men. But when you walk in, it's a little kid standing up on a box so that he reaches five-foot eating chicken, It's a five foot man eating chicken. I feel like it's the same kind of thing a lot with these new gospels that are discovered. There has been no new gospels discovered. Okay, so the third reason you can trust the Bible. Third, it hasn't changed. Because this is a big one, right? What if you had zealous monks? So I know we got the original composition early on, but what if you had zealous monks who just keep editing it to be what they want it to be, and they change it from this to that, and they, they, they make Jesus look like Lord? I mean, Bart Ehrman is, is, is famous for talking about how the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't refer to himself so much as being God, and then all of a sudden in John, he refers to himself. So, so what happened here, obviously, is that you had these zealous monks who are translating the Bibles, and so they are the ones, who then change it to get to the gospel that we have today. So the New Testament has been changed over time by people with an agenda, and it ruins the credibility of the Bible. So let's talk about that. The integrity of any ancient document is based on how many early manuscripts or or fragments you have of manuscripts, uh, because with ancient documents, a lot of times it's fragments uh, that we have. So for instance, Caesar's Gaelic Wars is considered well-established. There are 10 documents, a thousand years from the time they were written to the time that, that we have today. But they're considered well established. There's also seven ancient documents to talk about the writings of Pluto. Pluto. Plato. Pluto. That's a dog and a planet. Is that the one that's not a planet anymore? Okay, it's not a planet, it's just a dog. So the writings of Plato, there's seven ancient documents. It's considered well attested, and it's twelve hundred years between the original and his writings. So what do we have? Because if the Bible is going to compete with the other ancient accepted literature, then it needs to have eight to ten copies and be around a thousand years closer to the original. <laughs> this is your good news. Here we go. There is well over 5,000 ancient early copies of all or part of the Gospels in, in the New Testament, I should say. And they go to within 30 years of the originals. Come on. Somebody say, I don't have the original. No, nobody has the original where Paul wrote or Peter wrote or, or whoever. Nobody has the original, but we have very, very close yeah. to the original. In fact, we have complete whole copies of the New Testament, something called the Codex Vaticanus, that's in 325, within, within uh, 300 years of the time, you have the entire New Testament copies, uh, and then you have this uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which is 350, again, about 350 or 300 years. So you see these very early copies, you have copies of books and manuscripts, and then you have complete uh, editions of the New Testament. So, not only do the New Testament have better manuscripts and evidence than any other ancient document, They are also translated into several other languages at an early date. That's very important because people started to realize, I need to make sure I pass this around, so I'm translating it into the other languages from where my home country was, so they can get the gospel too. But what I think is the coolest one of all of them is not only that, but Christians early on started to realize how important these letters were, these, these words were, and they started quoting them when they sent messages to their friends and family back home or in other places and they would make little commentaries of it like little sermons essentially and they would say the apostle paul said da 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 and they would write it down and then they would make a commentary after it or just like we do today they might quote a bible verse they didn't call it that at the time but they might quote paul or the writings of jesus or something like that in their uh, writings and send it off to family members and when you put those in that are not actual ancient manuscripts in the sense that it was copied from the original but is written from the original in stories now you have over 86,000 quotations from the New Testament. Check this out. You can actually piece the New Testament together from those quotations without anything else. The entire New Testament is in those quotations where people are writing quotes about it. Maybe it's a paragraph or a little longer, maybe it's one sentence, but writing quotes and sending it out. So, Uh, William Nix is an expert on this. F.F. Bruce is an expert on this. He says, the New Testament has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other book, a form that is 99.5% pure if you're a good thinker right now you say but what about the 0.5 percent there are all kinds of classes you can take on that 0.5 percent what you will constantly see is that they are things that don't matter (laughs) it's the spelling of a name that that name might be spelled different ways right or maybe it's a William compared to a Bill compared to a Will compared to a Willie same person but you end up with different ways of saying the same name Uh, that's really what all that 0.5 usually is about Uh, the one that does matter it is not some secret hidden from you in fact it's in every one of your bibles is go back and read the very end of the book of mark and notice you'll have some kind of little uh, tab or something right there Uh, in every one of your bibles it's gonna have something there and then read the little thing in the bottom and it's gonna say these last I forget how many verses are not in the earliest manuscripts but they are found in a lot of them so they're here But it's not like some big conspiracy that somebody's trying to hide from you. Quite to the contrary, it's actually revealed right there in the scripture, very obvious for you. So, F.F. Bruce says, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. See, the Bible is the most documented ancient literature in history. Nothing even comes close it is well more documented than anything else we have ever had. All right, are y'all with me? Yes. Because I want to get to a place where I can, I can get out of the college classroom for a second. You can you not call me professor for a second and we can end on a better note than just, just filling your brain with knowledge. Because what I really want you to understand is that your faith is grounded on fact that your faith is not some giant leap in the dark that you have to believe without understanding or believe without knowledge. That is foolishness. Uh, That's not faith. Faith is evidence, and it is substance. That's why this series is called Evidence. So, if we are now all grounded a little bit better, there's a lot more we could talk about Uh, with this with this message Um, come to my apologetics group every once in a while we in fact this last session we we probably spent about three hours on this subject all together so I'm doing it much shorter and less today but okay let me give you the fourth one for almost 2,000 years why can we trust the Bible the Bible has been tried tested and proven trustworthy all right if you've been thinking all this morning and you're ready to shout this is your time Because here is the fact, the Bible has outlived every skeptic, It has outlived every atheist, every cynic, every antagonistic person who has tried to destroy it. And this has been going on for a lot longer than the modern era. Going all the way back, people have been fighting against the Bible. It has made it through wars. It has made it through people trying to burn it and trying to destroy it. It has made it through being outlawed in countries around the world. It has made it through parts of history where everything was against it. It has made it and made it and made it because this Bible is more than just a book. It is the power of life and death. This Bible is not past its prime because we are in a skeptical thinking age in the United States. It may be out of style, but it is not out of power. Come on, somebody. It still changes lives. It's still the number one selling book of all times. They just don't advertise it because it gets monotonous to always keep it there. It's always been that way. It's still been translated into more languages than any other book in the world by far without even a close second. It still holds the power of life and death. This this book is full of power it is full of principles, it is full of God's presence because it is not just a book, it is God's word written to you and that's why people can read this book with no under other understanding and be regenerated, be changed. All of a sudden they're a new creation, not from a preacher, but just from reading words because they're not just words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the very words, he speaks through those words, he is in the words. Are y'all with me, come on. The Bible is not just a good book, it's life. It's breath, it's the word of God, it's the principles that you need in order to survive and thrive within the world at any time, within any nation, within any culture, at any time. It's not just a book of good advice, it's a book of the spirit of God speaking to us and the power of God flowing in us, the principles of how to walk in the power of God. It's not just a good read, it's revelation from God almighty. It has the power to change you. It has the power to heal you. It is living and active. That's why you read it over and over and every time you get a fresh revelation, deeper and and more in there than you've ever had before. It'll change you. That's why you don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. Come on, somebody. Because when you read the Bible, all of a sudden you change to be it, not it changing to be you. It has the power to change you and heal you. It's living and active. In an era of fake news where you don't know what to believe, believe this. In an era where you don't know if I can trust this anymore and I don't know if I can trust that anymore. I used to trust this person or that thing. Trust this. It is unchanging. Science will change every year. It's a part of the nature of science. It'll rediscover every year. This does not Change Trust this. You can build your life upon it. Every year when we do credentials, they, they, they do this thing where they charge the pastors and they take a Bible and they put it in the ordinee's hands in front of them. And our superintendent makes this charge and he says something along the lines of this. He says, I charge you and I'm charging you to love this word, yeah. to love it with all of your heart, to go after it, to seek out the wisdom, to learn from this word. To study this word, to let it study you, to let it change you, to go into the depths of it. There are treasures that are hidden in this word waiting for you to take the effort to find them out. Study this word of God, love this word of God, learn from this word of God. Let this word of God be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Learn from it. What am I saying? The Bible is the most scrutinized book of all time. Yet it has withstood the test of time and scrutiny. (laughs) I said all that to say this as I wrap up. You can rest assured that the Bible has withstood all the scrutiny that has been given to it since the time it was written, almost 2,000 years. Time and time again it is tested, and every time it has proven to be accurate. The truth is, men don't reject the Bible because it contradicts themselves. Men reject the Bible because it contradicts them. Victor Hugo, the French thinker, said, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. Ulysses S. Grant said, Hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your heart and practice them in your life. But but what did Jesus say about it? This is where I want to end. I know I haven't used a lot of scripture in the traditional sense because we're talking about scripture, not in it. But I want to end with this thought. What does Jesus say about it? Like, like, what if Jesus was talking about this somewhere? What does he say? Well, he does. Matthew chapter seven, it's actually recorded multiple times. This is one of them. Verse 24 through 27. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Where are you gonna hear the words of Jesus? Nobody else is still Jesus speaking. This is where you hear the words of Jesus in the Gospels. So anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house, in, his house on, the, on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, The streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So we can talk all about the Bible. (laughs) We can shout about the power of the Word of God. We can talk about the intellectual understanding of how we got the Word of God. But that really doesn't matter if we're not actually utilizing the Word of God, if we're not building our lives upon the Word of God. So let me ask you this question. Are you building your life on the rock of Jesus or the sand of cultural opinion. If you're building your life on the sand of cultural opinion, it's gonna change constantly. It's shifting sands. Don't know if I can trust this or if I can't. But if you build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ and his teachings, which are found in this word, you can survive anything that comes your way. So how are you treating it? See, its power is only found when you open it, when you read it, when you dwell on it, when you study it when you apply it and perhaps in the church world where we get all upset because there's a attacks on the bible and you can't take the bible in school and all these things that christians get upset about perhaps maybe the greatest attack that nobody ever wants to talk about is the fact that we don't actually pick it up and read it yeah. Yeah. There you go. and we complain that you're not allowed to take it here or do this with it or it's taken down here we complain about this or that kind of thing but the fact is it sits on our coffee table it sits on our bookshelf Sits in the back seat of our car for a week until next Sunday. (laughs) It sits on our phone on an app that we never actually open. Or if we do open it, we read one verse and put it back down feeling like we did something good for ourselves. (laughs) See, the amazing thing about the Bible is not that it hasn't changed. The amazing thing about the Bible is that it has the power to transform you and I when we apply it to our lives, not when we understand it, not when we have a belief in it, but when we actually apply its principles to our lives. So when's the last time you really studied, you really read, you really started to apply the things that Jesus said that are controversial, that are hard, difficult? Because here's the truth. People have died, many people have died for the book that we ignore. To get it to you today. People have given their blood on it. I've shared this picture before, but I want to end with this and I gotta stop. I know it's time. But I've shared this picture before because it convicts me every time I see it. In 2012, I was in Nepal. It was my first trip to Nepal. We're trekking through jungles and mountains and the Himalayan mountains and, and we're going to churches to preach and and I got this word that the next church that we were going to as we walked something like five or six hours to get to it through the mountains that this next church that we were going to was former slaves the caste system the way it works in Nepal is technically illegal but it still very much operates and these were the very bottom class of people and it's right on the edge of these giant uh, rice fields. And everybody that was there worked in those rice fields. And I said, it's on the edge, it's actually right in the middle of the rice fields. And everybody that was in that church were from the rice fields. And so I'm like, wow, what an honor. No offense, but I like preaching to you, but I get to preach to these people who have nothing, nothing. Like they were basically slaves like a few years ago. And now they're still treated like slaves. And I'm like, what do I say to them? like, I can't connect with that very well. I don't care the color of your skin. None of us can connect with that very well. These are people, and we assemble in this little church, maybe, maybe half the size of our kids' room. This little church, everybody sits on the floor. That's what they do. They put on their nicest clothes. Literally, uh, many of them actually came straight from the fields, Because we were in the middle of the day, it was like a one o'clock, two o'clock, or something. And many of them came straight from the fields and walked right in. Others were putting on their nice clothes. I met the pastor, who obviously isn't full time; he just pastors the church. And when I walked in, he's talking with me. He's carrying this Bible, and he sets it down on the little table that was kind of on the what would have been the stage. I don't have a stage, but up in the front where the speaker would speak. And he sets it down, and I looked at it, and I instantly became convicted. Let me show you a picture of that Bible. I'm not even sure how many Bibles I have, to be honest with you. Maybe eight, ten, different translations. Then I've got all kinds of books about the Bible. I I literally probably have a hundred books about the Bible, maybe even more than that. This man had nothing. But he had the Word. (laughs) And that Word was enough to carry them through the hardest times of life. Times that you and I can't even fathom. And I looked at that word, it's it's torn, it's tattered, it's been abused, it's probably been rained on, it's probably been stuck in the back of pockets, it's protected the best it can, but this is the middle of nowhere, y'all. And that word is the same word that you and I have. And he would give everything for it. That was the most precious thing he owned. And he's read it so much, as you can see. And it's so convicting to me. Because while I I do love the Word of God, I don't always read it. I struggle sometimes. While I do love the Word of God, sometimes I find myself just reading a verse or five verses or something short just because I know I'm supposed to. I mean, I'm a pastor and all. I know that's better than nothing, but... People have died for the thing that we just ignore. Let that convict us. I don't want to just preach a message about how we got the Bible and how you can trust it. I want us to know that we have to live our lives on it because you can trust it and not actually put your trust in it.